Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Claudia Scott is one of the pillars of our church, a woman of faith who carries herself with dignity and poise. Growing up, she's been an example to me of faithfulness and passion for God. Having only known her over the last 20 or so years, I was clueless about how much she had been through in her past. She suffered repeated sexual abuse for years as a child. Once she left the house, her life didn't fare much better. When she did meet God and discovered his power to heal her, she began a journey that eventually led her to mental relief and peace of mind. This is her story. Interview number 15, Healing from Abuse and Abandonment with Claudia Scott. Welcome, Claudia. I'm so glad you're here today to talk about your life and to share your story. Let's jump right in, and maybe you could start by sharing about your background a little bit, who you were before Christ. Thank you very much. I was born in 1943 okay. in Pennsylvania, and my dad was in the military in the Air Force, so we moved every two years to Texas or Louisiana or North Africa or California like that. North Africa, huh? French Morocco, near Rabat and Casablanca, and wow. I was there in my fifth grade. <laughs> I didn't realize that. And you lived on the base in a trailer. Mm-hmm. The outstanding thing about that was being in another culture, uh-huh. especially in an African culture. I saw that the society and the stereotypes did not apply. Mm-hmm. It applied in America because back then we were called Americans. We were not called black or anything. Uh-huh. We were American, so we were special. Uh-huh. And this was back in the 50s. 1950s, okay. Early 50s. Okay. Talk about when you came back to the United States. What were you, how old were you, what were you into? I was in the fifth grade there. I came back to the United States. We went to Texas. We went to Fort Worth, Texas. And we were in San Antonio, Texas uh, at the bases there. It was different being down south. I was not comfortable at all. And it was before Martin Luther King, it was before civil rights, when you had segregation. Oh, wow. Where you had colored and white signs for bathrooms. Mm -hmm. Uh, You couldn't try on clothes. You couldn't, if you went to the movie theater, you were up, blacks were upstairs. And the problem, it wasn't the problem that it was black and white. It was the problem that, say, the black bathroom and the black water fountain was nasty. Right. So it wasn't clean. It wasn't as good. Yeah. So standard. Yeah. We were middle class. So you could be riding down the street and you could be stopped at a whim. And anything could be done to you. Mm-hmm. And you couldn't do anything about it. So my authority issues were about not having any way out. They could stop the car with my father and say, boy, where'd you get this car? 
And the only thing that would separate us was the fact he had on his military uniform. The schools were segregated. And in the southern schools, they kind of conditioned you to be self-serving. So I didn't like it. Mm-hmm. I didn't like it at all. Mm-hmm. In 58, we went, back, we went back to L.A., California, where my father had migrated his family, my grandmothers and aunties and everything. Okay. So that was integrated. That was, you had Chinese next door and Mexican across the street and white over this corner. So it was intermingled. It was no problem. Mm-hmm. I had an abusive childhood. We had things we didn't want for anything. Okay. I had a Austin Healy sports car in the tenth grade, mm-hmm. but that was to get me home in ten minutes. I was um, sexually assault- assaulted from the age of eight until fourteen. Wow. And that must have been terrible. Well, you kind of feel living in a prison. What happens is that the experiences are so devastating and demoralizing. Then the abuser threatens you. Right. So you're already going through a demoralizing thing. So you have no reason not to believe this person won't kill you or anybody you tell. Hmm. At 14, in 11th grade, I came up pregnant and I didn't know. They had backdoor doctors. Right. If you become a pregnant or something like that, uh-huh. the school sends a tutor to your house. So, so you don't you, miss your schooling. So you wouldn't be pregnant in the school, so they wouldn't see the pregnancy? Is that no, why? No, you couldn't be pregnant in oh, school. Because the, the social shame. In the era that we lived in, in the 50s, no way. Okay. So I had a home tutor. See, I am the only child. Uh-huh. So you're isolated. You only have an internal life in your head because there's no talk. There's nobody to talk to. You can't tell. So who who was the father? My father. Wow. And what happened next? Did you deliver the baby? Yes, I had the baby. And... Um, his master plan was that, because my stepmother couldn't have children, then I would have this child, and it would be a male child, to carry on the family name, and he would be raised in the house and played off as my younger brother. I started disconnecting. Like, I might be out on a bus to go somewhere, uh-huh. and then I'd be, I'd be on that bus two hours later not knowing what happened to space and time. I bet. So your your mind was just so yeah. traumatized by all this um, violation, really, that it was just, you were just kind of like losing touch with reality. Well, yes. At, at certain points. Wow. Well, you're, whatever way your mind goes, there is a disconnect. And I don't know. I only know I made it because of God. Okay. Now, what was your faith like back in those times? I don't know, because I was raised Episcopalian. Okay. And culture was stronger. Everybody had their faith, because back then, you didn't mean to marry out of your faith or out of your culture and things. But 
it isn't like today where everybody's on Jerry Springer telling every story of everything. Right. And so there was shame, there was embarrassment, there was humiliation. There was, oh, woe was me, there's victimhood. So what, what happened next? I mean, I imagine you were dying to get out of the house. I don't know. I don't know what happened. But, I, see, I would run away. Okay. And I'd go to the police. I'd go somewhere. What did they do back then? Let me call your parents. Right, and that's where you were running away from. And so... <laughs> so that's not, that's not helpful. And so... I was an intact family. I was a black family that had a father and a stepmother and owned their home. And he was military. So he was reputable. So they come rushing down. Old Claudia, she just wanted to go to a party, and we told her she couldn't go. Oh, she's wild. And then they, well, you have to go home with your parents. And so your stepmother was in on it the whole time, as far as the pregnancy and everything? Oh, sure. Wow. I can't even imagine. I don't know that she, she was involved in the acts. But she stayed. But there's no way. Because their bedroom and my bedroom and over the top of the closets was open. They connected. Mm-hmm. And if I locked my bedroom door, he could come over the closet into my room. Wow. So I don't see a way where... I've never had understood the concept of the other parent not having a clue. Right. So what happened next after the run-ins with well, the police? Well, I ran away to my auntie's in uh, Compton, and I still had not revealed who the father was. And so my father had gotten picked up and got, uh, put in the VA hospital because he had acted up in public, and the taxi took him to the hospital. So he was supposed to be confined. And I was there with my aunt and my cousins, three girl cousins, and the baby was with my stepmother. And my uncle came, he was in the army, he came to visit. And he asked me who the father was. And I told him I couldn't tell him. He said, if I tell you a name. So he told me my father's name and I shook my head, yes. And from there, Social services was brought in, okay. and so I had a social worker, a very kind social worker, and they interviewed me and talked to me and said it was not healthy for me to be around the baby or the baby to be around me because of the whole dynamic. So the plot was the baby's first birthday, we were to call and get the stepmother to bring the baby out to celebrate. And then when she came with the baby, the authorities were there and took the baby. But my father would get out. He, he was supposed to be under maximum security, but he would get out, and you'd see him coming down the street. My stepmother would pick him up, mm-hmm. and we would hide in the closets. Who's we? My cousins and me. Okay. So anyway, my aunts arranged with my natural mother and told her what happened, and begged her to take me, and apologized, whatever. And she gave in, and I went by train to Philadelphia to meet my mother for the first time. Oh, wow. At 16. And I was with her. And 
Your mind is in a cloud. You're not clear. So when we would talk, I would say mother, mother. Like she asked me, well, mother, mother so-and-so. And she had heard I had a car, I had this, I had that. So, well, I heard this, well, I heard that. And then she told me about a newspaper story where a young lady claimed her father had molested her. But then it wasn't really true. It was just that she was going along with it, mm-hmm. and, and then she got a boyfriend. So, my, so that really devastated me. So I took it like she thought I went along. So, so there was never any bonding. Right. And I went to 12th grade. That's where I went to 12th grade at Germantown High School. So at this point, you were estranged from your child. Oh, yeah. I was estranged from the first moment. Uh-huh. So did you ever develop a relationship with, with your child? No. Or no. Was it a boy or a girl? It was a boy. Is he still alive? I have no idea. Oh, wow. He was placed in a home, and I don't remember how many years later. So I had married. I had run off to Vegas and gotten married for the first time. But I got a phone call one day Mm -hmm. asking me about this baby, and I was freaked out. And they said something was wrong with the baby, and I had to get my permission for something. And I did. Mm -hmm. And... I told my husband, he took my clothes and threw them out in front of the apartment. I was out of there. I was a maniac. I was crazy. I was not normal. So he kicked you out as soon as he found out about the baby. What happened? Right. So This was probably, what, two years later? This is about 18 or 19. Okay. I went to stay with my mom one year, and it was horrible. And she was going to put me in some home. So okay. I had the option of going to the home and going back to California. So I went back to California. So where do I go in my delirium sickness? I go back to my parents' house. Right. And my stepmother goes to work, and my father asked me about the baby. And I said, oh, the baby died. Oh, really? Well, we'll make another one. Oh, jeez. So he came at me, and it had to be the power of God because I got away. I ran down the street and banged on the door, and they called the police. I had a district attorney, and we went to court. It took about a year because they kept getting all these medical reports about my father because he was in the VA. Uh And the district attorney told me if I'm lying, I could get 12 years. Yeah, but you weren't lying. And I wasn't lying. Right. But see, they had no DNA back then. They only had one your word against their word. It was a subject that was not talked about or handled like they do today. And we went to court. There was no witnesses. There was nobody I had told. The only one there was the auntie I went to stay with. And all she could say was that I would run away. But no, they didn't know who the father was. Because I didn't have boyfriends. I didn't go out on dates. I was scared to bring anybody home. Mm -hmm. 
So then what happened as far as your life developed? You got married, you ran off to Vegas. That, I, got di- I, I was divorced within four months. That ended in divorce. By then you're 18, 19. So yeah. what, what, uh, what did you pursue next? Well, he threw me out, and I had this Jewish girlfriend that we were close. And she came to New York City. So I, now I have another wacko thing. Oh, let me go home to my mother. This is what you do when your marriage breaks up. You know, TV storybooks. So I go to my mother, and it is still horrible. Right. So I come to New York City to visit my girlfriend. And she lives in the village. When the village is the historical village, you could go to the jazz clubs and the comedy clubs and, you know, all these Bob Dylans and Bill Cosby's and people who, when they were starting out. Okay. During that era. And people at the party were looking at me. She had said my best friend, Claudia. She had never said that I wasn't white. Uh huh. So they had assumed, because usually people distinguish, so this kind of friend or that kind of friend. And then they asked me, did I smoke? And I said, oh yeah, I have my own. And they were sitting there, I had never seen before, they were rolling marijuana. Uh And I freaked. Oh my God, I mean taking drugs. Mm -hmm. Because in California, we weren't exposed, it wasn't. So I stayed. And did you try marijuana at that time? No. Okay. No, because we thought if you did that, you'd be a junkie. Right. So I went to the labor department, and I got a temporary job at NABET, which was the union for television and movies, Mm -hmm. union. Okay. I started dating this guy who was a cameraman, Mm -hmm. and he was white. And I was staying in the Lexington Hotel, which was a couple blocks from my job, because I was making big-time money. Oh, okay. So I stayed there. I got pregnant. I didn't know. I was still having my whatever monthly and just thinking you're gaining weight. But it was the first time I had had a sexual experience where I wasn't terrified. Okay. Or felt safe or enjoyed myself. It wasn't traumatic. Right. Were you dating or you were married at this point? He was married and I was, we were dating. He was married to someone else? Yeah. Oh. And I turned him on. I had never had that experience where somebody thinks I'm hot uh-huh. or I'm desirable like a woman. I didn't find out I was pregnant till I was five months. And I went to the doctor, and and that's when my son started kicking. That's when I found out I was pregnant. You couldn't do anything about it. Birth control didn't come along until 1966 when my son was born. I don't know how, but I got social services. I got welfare. And... The social worker they gave me was another incredible person. So I got hospital care. I got apartment on the Lower East Side. And so I had everything. So it was just me and my son. 
And then I got burned out. I'm not the American Pie mommy nature type. Because uh-huh. I never really wanted to have children. And so I got a job. So talk about how you first came to Christ. My marriage. What, what went into that? My marriage, uh, 17 years had ended. All right, so you got married again. I got married at 27. And then you were married for 17 years. Yeah. And then how was that marriage? Was that happy and full of joy? Well, he was in show business. He was in, um, he and a partner built a recording studio on uh, 47th and Broadway called Rosebud Studios. And we got together in acting workshops, Dick Williams acting workshop. I had gone to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts okay. to study, mm-hmm. and that's where we met at this workshop. But the reality was he was a drug dealer and into music and had this recording studio. Mm-hmm. I was into theater and directing and going to workshops and performing in off-Broadway. I think he asked me three times before I got married, and, and I was pregnant and I got married, but then I had a miscarriage. Okay. I was good for him. He exposed me to things I had never seen. Right, because before when you saw drugs, you ran the other way. Now you're married to a drug dealer. But I didn't know it at the time. But you, Okay, you didn't know it. But he probably used as well. Well, he used, but, for example, apartment where we were, one wall was cardboard boxes. And I might be scrounging around in ashtrays looking for leftover marijuana to find out one time his friend Big John came over and they took down the boxes. It was all marijuana. Because John would bring it in on our boat. Wow. But we weren't street drug people. So but you I must had have... my son and... We were a family. You must have gotten over your aversion to marijuana, though, because you didn't run away from it at that time, right? No. I was allowed cocaine and marijuana, that's it. No other experiment. Uh huh. So with the cocaine, with the marijuana, this relationship, how, how did it end up? You said it lasted 17 years? Freebase came along, and I wanted out. I wanted to stop. What's that? That was when you smoke it. You transform the powder, cocaine, into a rock, and then you smoke it. It's a vapor. Okay. And so I wanted to stop, and my husband wasn't ready to stop. So I went to California, to L.A. with my cousins for a year, and he had my son with him. Because it was like he knew that if I took my son, I wouldn't come back. So I went to California for a year on my own. And then I came back. And he wanted to stay together. So for me, it was like I still had a home. Right. It wasn't like, oh, I'm left out here, where I always, always was alone and lonely. I had family. So I came back, and it didn't work out. 
So my um, sister-in-law and brother-in-law had been transferred to Atlanta because he worked for Delta Airlines. And I went down there with them for about a month. And then I'd come back to New York City. I thought I was going to die. I was stifled. I was suffocated. This is after the marriage? This is during the marriage. The this end of the marriage. The, the end of the marriage period, you felt stifled. You felt like you were going to die. I felt I was going to die. I, went, I tried to commit suicide several times. Wow. It didn't work. Were you still on the drugs at this time or no? Yeah. Okay. And so I left and I went to Atlanta. And I got a temporary job at Eminem Products, which was a black hair care company. And that's where I met Lily. She was my supervisor. Okay. And it took the drama of divorce or disconnecting from being codependent and changing total lifestyles. I started drinking, and I was sad and depressed. And I worked at this job as a buyer, but this woman who was loud. This is Lily? This is Lily. Okay. Loud. You could hear her all day, because whoever she talked to, you could hear everything. <laughs> okay. And I would ride to work with somebody in the computer department. And I didn't get to work one day. I was just so in the dumps. So I called this woman I rode to work with, and I was saying, oh, I feel so horrible. But you know who you need to talk to. You talk to Lily. Oh, no, I can't. Oh, no, no, no. She's so loud. She'll tell everybody. <laughs> oh, She'll <no>. tell everybody. <laughs> Call her. Trust me. So I called her. She came to my house after work. I sat on the living room floor and poured out my whole guts to her. So you don't do that because you know, oh my God, what did I do? I, I don't, oh, oh. She simply said, there's nothing wrong with you except you don't know God. And you'll come stay at my house with me and we'll take this class. How did you receive that? I took an overnight bag and I went to her house. So you, you were like, well, let's give this a try, or you thought she was crazy, or? I didn't think she was crazy. I just calmly accepted it and said, okay. And I went to her house, and to have this class, you had to have seven people minimum. And we waited a month and a half, and I was frustrated. And it was wintertime. And I put my stuff in storage and I stayed there. She gave me her bedroom. She slept on the sofa. Wow. Her son had his own room. Now, she is a co-worker, right? She was my supervisor. She, oh, she was your supervisor. So you didn't have a relationship outside of the, the job until she invited you into her house. Yes. That's, I mean, I, that's pretty amazing that she did that. It is. It's God. It's very unusual. Hey, you're having problems and you spill your guts about all the trauma and hardship you've been through. And she's like, all right, move into my room and I'll sleep on the couch. Who does that? Well, I didn't tell her about the childhood or the abuse or anything. Oh, okay. You I didn't. No. I told her about what was happening then. Okay. And the class was an audio class. Mm -hmm. And there was 12 sessions. 
But at the end, you would be able to speak in tongues. Uh-huh. You'd be able to communicate with God directly, and God would be able to communicate with you. And you would not be going through a third person or somebody filtering what you had to say or think. Mm-hmm. So that's what I went for. After days of class, she would not let me out of her sight. And she said, things are going to come up where you're going to say you can't make it tonight. No, you're going to make it. This is to take the next class? No, the next session of the 12 sessions. Okay, right. So I went, and when we got to the eighth session, I just, something just opened up. You know, you go to a class and you're sitting there wanting to sleep through it so you can go home. Well, this eight session happened, and I was on the edge of my seat. I was electrified. It was the class on soul and spirit. Mm-hmm. And see, she had said, this is the class that's going to, you know, be a miracle and change your life. Well, you've heard that before. And I knew if it wasn't a miracle and changed my life, I wasn't going to buy it. But she was so into it. I might lose her for a friend. Right. But it was it. Like, Eureka. And I was not into the people. I was not in the believers of the congregation. I was only into hearing the word. So when we would have fellowship or meetings or something, I would be outside smoking and twiddling my thumbs until the teaching. I'd go in, be electrified. When the teaching was over, I'd be back out in the parking lot. What was that? You were just like so hungry to know God, to know the scriptures, to know the practical life of a child of God. I mean, what was it about it that... Everything that I read or was taught taught in the Word was things I liked and I wanted. Uh I had been told all my life, grow up, Uh accept reality, face facts. Like anything I thought was immature. So all men fooled around. Everybody was slick. Everybody was shucking and jiving. Working an angle. Everybody was working an angle. Everybody was playing games. I didn't know how to play games. I didn't like games. I can be used and fooled. I'm dumb. I'm slow. I didn't have the mother and father who wanted me. I don't have this. The only thing worthy of me is my skills. Uh huh. So you had home fellowships. I was there two years. Atlanta spit me out. So I was there, but, you know, the job, the this, the drugs, the life. And I had a friend who told me to pack your bags, we're going on a trip. We're going to go away on a trip. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I meet them. They take me to the airport. They have bought me a ticket to New York. Atlanta is not for you. You need to go back to what you know. And I was on the plane. And I was terrified because I'm out of the people, places, and things. Right. No drugs. No hanging out, no partying, no clubbing, none of that. So I come back and I go to 
a friend, a co-worker, old co-worker, and I stayed with her in Queens, but it turns out she's really on the dark side. And I don't know what to do. And I God, God, oh, I gotta get out of here. What can I do, what can I do? And I start going through my phone book. Now I had been in touch, the ministry had been, if you go here, I can hook you up with a believer. And I was hooked up with a fellowship. So I called this man, Joe DeVita, who's John and Mary McCabe's relative, which I didn't know. Okay. And Joe DeVita was the coordinator of the fellowship. He says, be at my house at 7 o'clock. I went to his house. He had this giant house. I stayed there. I had my own room and whatever. And we were at fellowships, and it was sweet. And I was working in a law office on Fifth Avenue. Uh How long was that? That was for... Ah, uh, probably a year. Perfect. He was wonderful. She had still lived this carnal life. It seems like you had both. And right? but I had this God. I didn't miss fellowship. I loved, but I would still do the old habit. So for you, when did that change? Because so long as I've known you, you've been different than what you're describing here. Joe DeVita worked for Westinghouse, and he got a transfer to Virginia Beach. And I got his home and apartment. So I was there, and I had, he had given me his, you know, I succeeded him in his apartment. And I had fellowships in my house. Mm-hmm. But in the foundational class, the teacher had mentioned, you go three months without newspapers and TV, and you'll be changed. So in this apartment, I had no TV and no phone. All I did was listen to teaching tapes. Wow. On Saturdays, I'd go to the matinee at the Valley Street Movie Theater, and I would listen to teaching tapes and read the Bible because it was so fabulous. And I was still smoking marijuana Mm -hmm. because I'd like to smoke marijuana and read the Book of Acts. (laughs) (laughs) And... (laughs) I, I slowly, I wasn't smoking marijuana. It was like I looked up one day, oh, what did he say? Oh, my God, I forgot that was in there. Well, I guess I don't need that. So I threw it away. I haven't done it. So at some point, you just... I just got rid of it. Because of something you read? No, it just stopped. I just, I had stopped huh. smoking it or thinking about it. Huh. And it was still in the drawer where I had it. So I threw it away. No, I haven't done it. There was this WOW program coming along, this type of mission type. And it seemed that everywhere I go, people were talking about it. I don't know why it started being on my mind, going on this program. I went on the Word Over the World ambassador program for a year. Okay, so you, where were you stationed as a missionary? St. Louis, Missouri. Okay. When I, I wasn't doing anything bad then. When that was over, I went to San Diego. Now, Lily had been in touch with me. I always had Lily. Okay. Because she had an 800 number. So I could call her anytime with no problem. She was continuing to mentor you? Yes. Because something would come up that I didn't know about, and I'd tell her, and she'd tell me what was righteous. I went to San Diego. I was there five years. I loved it. 
I left San Diego because it was like time to leave. The town had shut down. God was saying, move. So I was to go be a girlfriend in Washington, D.C., and I hated Washington, D.C. But Washington, D.C. was two hours from Delaware, where Lily was, because she had gone on this program also the year after me. Okay. So I went to Delaware for two years because I had driven across country to D.C. Mm -hmm. So I went to Delaware. And I stayed with Lily, and I was spiritually weak. Mm -hmm. I was burned out. And she was advised not to let me stay with her. But she says, I'm letting her stay with me. And I stayed with her. But uh, ministry-wise, there was confusion and a lot of changes. Okay. Because the founder had fallen asleep and passed away. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of politics and things going on. Yeah, are you with this guy, are you with that one? Yeah. So I stayed to myself. Now, when the founder had fallen asleep, I had collected all the material I could hoard because I didn't know what was going to happen. So I would play my own material. I would do my own fellowships in my room. I would schedule a class schedule and have the syllabus and do it for myself. Mm-hmm. And I would write to friends, and we they would ask me what I learned, and I would ask them what they learned. And this went on for two years. And I was doing nothing there. What I say about Delaware is Joe Biden and the, vet, and the agriculture is fabulous. The food. Okay. <laughs> the, uh, you know, the farming and all that. Right. So there was an event up here that Vince had called the Gathering Together Advance, an event up at Silver Bay. Mm-hmm. So I came here for that Gathering Together weekend, and I was reju- rejuvenated. I was hugged and loved and remembered. It was the kind of comfort and camaraderie we had when the ministry was hopping. Okay. And I didn't realize how much I had done without or missed it. Right, because you were kind of isolating. So every time there was an event, there was a class. There was a singles class. There was a barbecue. I would drive five, six hours to come. Wow. And your dad would find housing for me to sleep over. So I had come to a a barbecue at Donna's house. I remember that. And at one point, your dad said, well, when was I going to move up here? Oh, I can't because of so-and-so. Well, what's holding you there? Nothing. Okay. And I went home. I put everything together. And he found me housing that I could stay in until I got settled. So all the action was here in Latham. And that's before we had the church built. And I would come to Vince's Fellowship on Sunday and on Wednesdays, home fellowship. And I got a place right up the street. I got evicted because I couldn't get a job. Unemployment signed me up for food stamps. Believers would secretly leave bags of food by my front door. I wasn't used to the cold climate. Mm -hmm. And then I moved in with another believer, which was not the best. And I left, and I slept in my car. 
and I would ask God every day where to go. And I'd come after dark and park on the farm in the parking lot. And I had my pillow and my comforter, and I was working temporarily at GE. So I would go there early because GE had showers and things like that, and I could work. And then Linda Baldwin took me aside one day and said she was moving to Texas, and she knew I loved her apartment, talked to Nita, the landlord. And I immediately did. And Nita let me move in. No application, no deposit, no nothing. Wow. And I was there 13 years. Huh. I loved her. All my time as a believer was focused on the Bible and doing the works and the will and obeying and learning about God. And so I had turmoil and torment emotionally and psychologically inside. And this is the first place I've been where what happened was that we were learning about counseling, biblical counseling and ministry. And lo and behold, the ones who needed to be counseled and ministered was us. And so we started spiritual counseling, this 12-step spiritual journey, inside out. And there was a group started for women who had been abused. It had come up, so it started meeting at the office on the farm once a week. And it was a strong voice in the back of my head, this is what you've been looking for. Because for years, I would walk every morning and whine and beg and plead, dear God, if there's any way out. I was thankful for the new life. I was thankful for some relief. But I still had emotional torment because of my younger life. Those old memories were coming up and they were causing you pain. Yes. I had gone through the years of nightmares. I had gone through the years of depression. I had gone through the years of memories popping up here and there. And it was like I couldn't get free. I didn't want to go to sleep because I would dream. Um, Waking up was bad news. Sleep was the only relief, and then half the sleep was bad dreams. So I went to this group. We had um, a psychologist, and we had a young lady who had suffered from abuse from her brother when she was younger. I would get rattled the day before the group met. I would be trembling inside. But this group went on. I didn't tell them everything, but I did share how I had been abused by my father and the effects over years because it wasn't some stranger out of the bushes or something like that. So I got a lot of relief. When it was over, one of the leaders of the group recommended me to a Mary Martin for a psychological evaluation. This doctor charged $200 for a consultation. Okay. (laughs) And 
I needed an evaluation, a written evaluation. And I took my rent money, that's all I had. And I went to see her. And I kept stressing to the receptionist how I needed a rent, would I get this evaluation? So when the doctor saw me, I was there two hours, told her my whole story, and where I thought it was, you know, the abuse. She said, no, it was abandonment. I had been abandoned all the way along. She prescribed to me two medications and referred me to the Albany County Mental Health Department because I couldn't afford to come to her. And God had blessed me because the doctor didn't charge me for the consultation. Oh, really? She said, you don't need to pay me. Keep your money. Wow. So that was God to me. Mm-hmm. I went to Albany County Mental Health, and I was seen by the supervisor, Karen Ziegler. And I saw her once a week. And she talked to me as an adult. So it turned out I was in the quote-unquote independent living. I had never been hospitalized. I had had a family. I had had a career. Somehow I had compartmentalized everything Mm -hmm. and was able to function. And I saw her two years. Then I was... um, I went through the spiritual journey with your dad. And just to clarify, spiritual journey is it's 12, a workbook. It's a workbook. It's a 12-step called spiritual journey. It's a workbook. Um, people's minds will go to the 12-step AA program. Right. This is similar in that sense. It's a probing. It's questions mm-hmm. that you answer. And I may give an answer, and your dad is say, are you sure? Well, think on that a little longer. And then I would come to another place that I hadn't Hmm. realized. So you started getting a greater understanding. Of myself. Yeah. And as we went through it, there was a point where he said, oh, now I understand why you're like you are. And that upset me. (laughs) Why did it upset you? I didn't want to be that visible. I didn't want it to be noticeable. Like, you go, you go in a room and you say, oh, well, this one's got issues, this one's got problems. I don't want you to be able to tell who mm-hmm. I am. I want you to see Claudia as you see her today, not the issues and the baggage. And that's what God had promised me, mm-hmm. that his arm was not too short, that he was bigger and better than anything, and I could be healed. I didn't want the devil to have power. It's like he got a shot for 39 years. He blew it. I belong to God and Jesus Christ. I am delivered. And the Bible continually says, persevere in prayer. It says, do not give up. And I've always believed anything you want, you have to want it bad. Right. No matter what. And so I held on to that, and I prayed constantly, please help me, please deliver me. Now, everyday Christians will say, oh, be more loving. Oh, be more giving. Oh, don't think negative. Oh, renew your mind. That does not help. Because I had racing thoughts. Mm. 
I would have a multiple of thoughts, bang, 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 one after the other. That steals your energy. Mm-hmm. And so you're exhausted mm-hmm. from your thoughts. If you have a good day, you halfway can enjoy it because you anticipate how long is it going to last. So you were able to find relief to some degree? Or is this something you're still struggling with? No, I'm not struggling anymore with anything. So how did that work out? Was it through this uh, 12-step spiritual journey that you were able to go to God with these very, come to a greater understanding and then go to God with these issues and find the healing? Or is there another step here? No, all combined. Uh huh. It was like over five or six years. Oh, okay. The, the analysis, the counseling, the trauma group, the 12-step journey, the prayer, the believing and holding fast, in the Bible, it talks about the woman who had the issue of blood 12 years. Mm-hmm. And it uses her as an example of perseverance. Well, some things with God were removed right away. Some things took longer. This took longer. I had wanted this my whole life. I wanted this more than anything. More than children, more than a husband, more than a career, more than stardom, more than fame more than a house with a Mercedes, because I had achieved much materially. Mm -hmm. Right. I had gotten my dreams. I had a good address. My kid went to private school. I had it good, but I was miserable. Right. So you knew that the answer wasn't to get back to that place. No. When you get there and people say, oh, it's empty, I was still contemplating suicide. When you had it all? Yes. Wow. I was still had depression episodes. Things just lifted away. I would wake up dreading the day, and one morning I woke up, and I'm laying there, and oh boy. And it was like a voice said, what's your problem? Nothing happened yet. <laughs> and it was like a revelation. That's right. Nothing happened yet. And there's a man in our church, Craig, when they would pray out loud, Craig would usually pray, thank you, God, for this day. I will rejoice and be glad in it. And that became my prayer, too, because I didn't know what was coming yet. Mm -hmm. I knew what was on the agenda, but it didn't have to be bad. So I expected, I started expecting good things. I started expecting things to work out. And that changed my outlook somehow inside. Yeah, I think that would change it. And I would start finding myself at night enjoying. So I started keeping a daily journal that I would write in every night before I went to bed. And there would be good things and surprising things and oh boy things, wonderful. And then it would be normal everyday things. But I had started losing fear, the need to know what's happening and controlling it. Things were nicer when I didn't figure them out. And then God says, cast your cares upon me because I care for you. Seek Ye the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all things will be added unto you. 
Be anxious for nothing. God will supply all my need. He did not give me the spirit of fear, but the power of love and the sound mind. So over time, I started seeing good rather than being able to spot bad a mile away. I started being more understanding and compassionate rather than judgmental. And you were able to experience change in that? How old were you when these major 60s. shifts? So you're in your 60s, and it's like you're getting a whole new life yes. or a whole new lease on life where you're, even from the perspective of what you think when you wake up, you're, you're experiencing genuine lasting change. I made it because of God's intervention. It was not by my brain power. It was not by my name or my education. Or I had this famous friends. It was because of God's grace and mercy on my life. If he knew me from my mother's womb, if when your father and your mother forsake you, the Lord will take you up. I would pray for my brain to be healed the grooves and the neurons and whatever they are, right. the tracks that are embedded there. From the racing thoughts and the ways of For thinking. To be healed. I had to learn to think spiritually because something would happen and I would think one thing. That was my instant thought or reaction. Well, that was carnal or five senses or the old man. And I would have to turn it into godly thinking, what God says is right or wrong, mm -hmm. what I should do. So it was like another language. I would learn, I would think in one language and I'd have to translate it over to godly thinking. I would speak in tongues a lot to the point where I could do it reflexively. I would find myself speaking in tongues rather than remembering, oh, I haven't spoken in tongues since yesterday or whatever. I had to get to a point where I really believed that God loved me. Because of my background, I did not believe God. I just believed if he loved me, what, what happened to me wouldn't happen. Well, how could God let this? How come so-and-so? And what did you end up concluding on that? I concluded that he was there all along. Otherwise, I wouldn't have survived. I would be in some institution drooling, or I'd be some negative stereotype. If you look at my diagnosis, I have PTSD. I'm clinically depressed. I'm borderline this. I'm borderline that. But you cannot identify yourself by your diagnosis. Right. Well, you can identify yourself by your diagnosis, but you're probably not going to change from what it is. If you want to change, then you have to start thinking differently, right? I mean, that makes sense. Well, my identity is in Christ. Well, let me ask you this. If there's somebody who, who's listening to this who has gone through similar experiences or suffered abuse, and they're struggling with these same sorts of problems that you were describing here, what would you say to them at this point? That it's all a big lie. You weren't the abuser. You weren't the sinner. You were sinned against. 
you were taken advantage of against your will. It is not on you. Well, if this is supposed to be the most biggest, baddest in the universe, if this is supposed to be the creator, the creator of the heavens and the earth and the mountains and the seas, if he can sustain all life, if these things that he says are true, then I proved it. Now it says in Hebrews, a lot of people didn't come into God's rest because of unbelief. And belief is supposed to be action. So if I want this, I cannot unbelieve mm -hmm. according to the Bible. You got to believe it's possible for healing or else you're never going to seek it. You're never going to pursue it. And it's not, it's not going to fall in your lap. You got to pursue it and when you do pursue it, what you mentioned was you, you got into a group at one point. In another point, you went to see a, a professional and then had regular meetings with a professional counselor. You also worked through it with another believer, with my father, going through this spiritual journey. And you also had the constant practice of tenacious prayer. Fervent seeking, prayer. yeah, fervent prayer, seeking God. So all these things. To, I mean, it's, it doesn't seem like you left anything <laughs> to chance here. You you did everything you possibly could, and you're saying it worked and it was worth it, and you're you have relief now. Things just lifted and came. I have peace. I don't have the racing thoughts. I can talk about this and think about this, but not being traumatized three weeks from now. Right, right. Because we just went through this whole story. And you were cool as a cucumber. Because it it's, it's not alive. It's festering in me. Mm -hmm. You've already done business with it, and so it doesn't have power over you anymore. Hebrews says the believers can, did not receive the promises. Well, I have not received the ultimate salvation when Christ returns as yet. But I have received a lot of promises. Mm -hmm. I have received a lot. And while I'm on my way to one goal, God gives me victories and blessings and promises along the way. It's not like I went 20, 40 years waiting for this one ultimate relief. I have had relief all along the way. You have to have encouragement mm -hmm. to keep on. And when you hit a brick wall, God gives you a second wind. I am sold out. I stake my life on it, whatever that is worth. I drank the Kool-Aid, and it's good. <laughs> I usually don't use that in a positive way. But, um, well, let me ask you this. What, uh, do you have any concluding thoughts overall here as we're winding down? I am concerned about those male and female, old and young, who have been taken advantage of, and not only in a sexual way, but a number of ways. And I'm saying that it's a willingness in the heart. God works with willingness and steadfastness and perseverance and hope. And it is available. And what I'm saying is, die trying. What are you willing to stake your life on? 
It tells you how to get out of this, how to get accomplished that. The Bible tells you everything you need to know about anything. And it also says God recompenses what you have been sinned against. He will recompense more. So there's greater things to come. Well, that's good news. <laughs> well, thanks for taking some time and sharing your story and being open and honest. I think this is really going to help some people. I hope so. Quite a story, huh? It's hard to know how to respond after hearing such a saga of pain and healing. But suffice it to say that God is great, and He is glorified when we recount how He delivers us and how He works with us. And I, for one, am so appreciative that Claudia was willing to spill her guts. And if you would like to engage with this podcast, you can go to restitutio.org. That's restitutio, like restitution with no N, dot O-R-G. And click on the tab for podcasts and scroll down to interview 15 with Claudia Scott and leave a comment there. Also, if you would like to share this with others, if there are people that you know who have also suffered or who for whom this this testimony would be helpful in getting them to consider faith in God and the deliverance available through his grace, then please share this episode on social media. And together, let's get the word out that our God is still in the healing business and that he is setting people free and that even deep wounds don't have to define us for our entire lives. Also, if you would like to get more podcasts like this one, please subscribe to this podcast in your phone or on your tablet in your podcast app. Just look up Restitutio and subscribe. Or you can listen to previous episodes online as well. Just go to restitutio.org. And I have over 100 episodes up there for you to check out. So thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.